There are things we think of as fundamental building blocks of our society. Some of them are easily quantifiable and others not so much. Measuring society is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we explore the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Stats and Stories is a production of Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Joining me in the studio are regular panelists, John Baylor, chair of Miami Statistics Department, and Richard Campbell, former chair of Media, Journalism, and Film. Our guest today is Chaitra Nagaraja, professor of strategy and statistics at Fordham University. She's also the author of the book, Measuring Society. Chaitra, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Could you describe what Measuring Society is about and why you decided to write it? Much of my work has been on official statistics, which is stuff that governments produce to tell you about the economy or the society. And I also used to work at the Census Bureau. And I wanted to combine those things uh, with my love of history to produce something that sort of explains to a regular reader about how these statistics are computed, why they are sort of idiosyncratic in certain ways because of politics and historical impacts. Um, and I wanted people to sort of understand what it is they're reading about when they read about unemployment and so forth um, in the newspapers and magazines. So what's, what's one of the hardest things that, you, that we measure as a society using official statistics? I would say among the things that I focused on, things related to very heterogeneous things like uh, price indices, for example, people buy all sorts of things. How do you sort of combine all that information into one number to say, you know, prices are increasing or decreasing? And that affects, you know, your cost of living, um, how your salaries go up and so forth. And um, that I found to be sort of the most complex sort of set of operations to produce a single number. Can, can you give an example of, of how a price index is calculated? So they start off by looking to see where people buy certain items. Then they'll go visit those stores periodically and see how much you know your applesauce costs. And they look at that same brand of applesauce. And once that brand of applesauce is now missing from the store, then they have to find a substitute. Then they have to also figure out, okay, the quality of things changes, like your computer, your cell phone, all of those types of things change really quickly. How do you handle stuff like that? Or even fashion, which is something that changes very quickly as well. So you can think about the number of products or the number of types of goods and services you buy across an entire nation where prices are very different depending on where you live. Um, so the operation is really complex, including interviewing people, physically visiting stores, and trying to combine all of that in some statistical way to produce uh, the consumer price index, for example. Uh, another thing that's uh, complex is the challenge, and you talk about this, of writing about technical concepts without using equations or specialized jargon. Tell us about how, uh, tell us your challenges in doing that kind of work and in writing your book. Yeah, this was uh, the biggest challenge for me. That was the one rule the editor had. You cannot <laughs> include equations. I have one equation, but I, I thought it was simple enough, uh, the equation for poverty, that you know, it was accessible to the general reader. Um, I did find that a big challenge. I mostly decided to try to explain equations through history to, to sort of say, okay, mm -hmm. you have 
for example, the poverty measure is looking at how much food uh, cost in um, 1963. They roughly said about a third of people's budgets went to food. They multiply that number by three, and then they update it every year due to inflation. So I tried to take that apart. Uh, why did they use food as the sort of basis? Um, mm -hmm. So I did a little bit of historical work on that. And why use inflation? Well, prices change. So I tried to set up the book so that as you read through the chapters, stuff from previous chapters gets sort of included in the measures for later chapters to give people a sense of intuition rather than give us formula. But I just I would say it was a very challenging, um, uh, challenging in a good way for me, because most of my writing as a uh, university faculty member has all been technical. <laughs> I, I found it interesting that that you you described what you were doing as a as thinking about official statistics like an investigative journalist. Mm -hmm. You know yes. that, that you start with the, the who, what, why, where, when, how. I I just knew that would bring a smile to Rosemary and Richard's <laughs> face. It, it it did for me as well. Uh, you know that 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 was a great model for trying to to pitch this. Yeah, I've I found that in order to make it interesting and less about okay, first this step is done and that step is done. I started thinking about why did they turn out this way? You know, if you look across different countries, um, to use poverty as, a, as an example again, in the US, we have sort of a subsistence level of poverty measure. Mm -hmm. um, whereas in Europe, they look at more about where, whether you are able to sort of function relative to other people in the society. Mm -hmm. um, and those are very different philosophies for approaching um, a measure. And so I got interested in that sort of thing to sort of explain why, you know, the U.S. has these particular formulas. You know, it didn't have to turn out that way. It could have turned out some other way. Um, so I felt like the journalist who, what, when stuff was helpful in trying to approach an, uh, a way to explain those formulas. So in your training, did you, I mean, you're a very good writer, and uh, oh, no, no offense to John, but a lot of statisticians aren't. <laughs> so what it what it's it, taken here Campbell <laughs> so no John actually is a very good writer so uh what did you do in your training what what uh what helped you become someone who could translate difficult complex topics and equations into more accessible language I would say two things one I read a lot um of stuff outside of statistics mm -hmm. so, so i use some of those as models. Uh, the second I would say actually when I was in my graduate program, when I was preparing for my defense, some of my um, professors agreed to sort of have me do a trial run. Um, at the time it was quite brutal because they sort of <laughs> made comments about every slide, but I learned a lot from that um, in terms of how to present, how to think about what the audience will know coming into my talk. Um, and the actually related to that, I was um, a TA one, one semester for the MBA course at Penn. And that course was essentially, there's so many MBA students, there were about four professors. They had the exact same content in terms of the slides, but they, you know, they presented um, that information in very different ways. So I sort of rotated every day I would uh, read class, I would go to a different professor's class, 
and see how they brought their own personality into what was literally the same content in terms of what they mm -hmm. showed on the screen. Very good. And that also, you know, showed me that there's no not one way of making an explanation. And you should feel free to use your own personality as opposed to trying to sort of uh, standardize yourself in a way. So I would mm -hmm. say those are the things that kind of over the years sort of um, I picked up. Very good. Chaitra, so for someone who's not an academic or who's not working uh, at a think tank or a journalist, why should they care how these official statistics are created and used? Well, one, they affect you. Um, for instance, a lot of like social security payments or even cost of living increases in your salary come from looking at what the consumer price index or the index mm -hmm. made by the Bureau of Economic Analysis, how those change over time. So they're sort of pegged to things that will matter. They also matter in terms of what the, your politicians tell you about how things are going well or poorly. Um, and things like, um, in financial markets, they change a lot by the unemployment numbers that come out every month and so forth. So a lot of things around you are affecting uh, what you do, even if on a personal level, you aren't looking at those numbers and making decisions. So just to, to follow up, I mean, these, you're, you know, these numbers are, do have a lot of impact when they come out, you know, whether it's the unemployment rate or growth. And, and you know, as as you state in your book, and as as we recognize, there's there's a lot of, of assumptions. There's there's maybe sampling that's involved in this. This is a this number is constructed in some way, and part of that construction is uncertainty and variability. But but often when we see this re reported, it's re it's reported in the context of of these no a single number, as if it was you know brought down from a mount on a stone tablet. <laughs> And, and I'm, I'm wondering about the reporting of uncertainty and variability. And, and, and is, that, is that something that there's kind of an over-interpretation of swings and these point estimates of numbers? I think there are. I think in general, um, humans don't like uncertainty. I mean, if you watch any like news program and they ask people, they bring on you know, experts to predict something, in order to be called back a second time, you have to, you know, come across as really sure about your answer. Hmm. And I do think that extends to numbers. People, if people see a number that seems like it's more objective, um, what I was trying to show in my book that actually numbers are not objective. We shouldn't think of them that hmm. way at all, mm -hmm. even though they look that way because they're solid as opposed to fuzzy. Um, so I don't think it's necessarily a media problem. I think it's just a human uh, problem. I think it's really hard to think about how uncertain things are, even if you do give um, a confidence interval. Like recently in an Economist article, they had confidence bands on a graph, uh, which I was surprised. But, you know, that means the journals had enough knowledge to put a confidence interval in their graph. But it also means you assume that the reading public also has that same level of numeracy. Um, and I'm not really sure that's always the case. You're listening to Stats and Stories, and today we're talking with Chaitra Nakaraja, Professor of Strategy and Statistics at Fordham University. I want to go back to this issue you're raising sort of, I think, around the, the issue of journalism. Um, and you've mentioned sort of the issue of sort of the expert, right, going on. And if you communicate uncertainty, maybe you're not going to be asked back. And the issue of sort of how you present um, 
numerical information for a reader. What what do you what have you found frustrating in the coverage of things like the unemployment rate or or uh, um, poverty levels? What what, uh, what do you think journalists could do better when reporting these statistics? I have read that journalists don't really get to pick their headlines. <laughs> we don't right. generally. We, we don't. That's right. <laughs> Those are kind of, you know, especially with medical studies, for example, it's sort of, you know, copy is wonderful for you, copy is terrible for you, don't vape, you know, like that kind of, um, they're supposed to catch your eye, but I feel like they make you think that the results are more definitive than they are. Um, so I don't, I, you would probably know better about whether or not journalists get to pick their headlines, but I feel like that's one of the biggest sort of the language used make, make it seem that, you know, scientists came up with this result and it's sort of a definitive fact um, as opposed to, you know, we did this research, this is what we found, but it obviously it is always possible that, you know, results could be slightly different the next time around. When, when you teach about uncertainty, do you have tips or things that would explain this better to both your students and to journalists? Actually, I do. Um, there is a good article in the New York Times that was published during the last presidential election where they gave a certain data set about um, like election poll results to four different groups of people, all qualified to analyze the data. And they go through in a lot of detail about what assumptions they made about figuring out who likely voters are and so forth. And they got, you know, different results. And I show students that article um, because it's, it shows that even if you are, you know, qualified researcher, you are not acting in a malicious manner, you could still have disagreements about how to analyze mm -hmm. and how to mm -hmm. think about the fact that you are making certain assumptions and assumptions are one expression of uncertainty. You know, I was I was interested in your your comment about the poverty indices and and how they differ between the the U.S. and and Europe, and and we've had guests on previously from the U.N. Stat Division. Stefan Schweinfest was was a guest on Stats and Stories previously, and we we were talking about kind of what the U.N. is trying to do in tracking uh, official statistics from around the world, and I, I was just trying to imagine how difficult it is to think about how would you compare countries in terms of these indices, given these very disparate constructions? Do you, do you know, how, how is that done? I think it's done in multiple ways. I know like the International Labor Organization, they try to do something like that with unemployment. Um, for example, um, in many countries, they look at unemployment, they focus on a population that's 15 and older, but thanks to like labor laws in the US, we use 16 and older. So they try to use, you know, for instance, like demographic information to try to make an adjustment to make these numbers comparable. But the more complicated the statistic, the harder it becomes. There's also a project, um, uh, the World um, Wealth Database or World Income Database um, done by like uh, Thomas Piketty and some other people from France where they try to do the same sort of thing for inequality levels, trying to get external information to adjust estimates and so forth to, to get estimates that are comparable across countries. I think it's extremely hard to do because most of these definitions to actually have them mm. be able to be implemented in practice are very complicated um, and that there's no way around that. But I think what they attempt to do mostly is to try to find 
other information that they you could use to adjust the estimates that are produced. So in your book, you talk about working with other professionals outside statistics, ethnographers, translators. You also talked about your interest in history, and those are some of the favorite parts of your book, that when you go back and tell how they used to collect data and how we do it today. Can you talk about the benefits of learning outside of your field and uh, what uh, meeting with those other professionals has brought to the table for you? Yeah, when I was working at the Census Bureau, I worked in the research division, and it didn't have just statisticians, it had psychologists, sort of people who did ethnography and anthropology and so forth, and I, uh, people who looked at like user experience, how well you can use, people can you navigate the websites or forms and things like that. And I felt like I, I learned a lot about um, how all of those things affect people being encouraged to fill out a form or give good information um, on the form. So to give an example, census forms are printed in multiple languages, not just in English. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of effort put to make sure that the translated version is reflective of what the Census Bureau wants to collect from people and that you know people can understand what's happening. So they do a lot of testing around that. Um, and I feel all those sorts of things sort of gave me a more complete picture about how data collection is, is not just a statistical technical issue. There are a lot of other things involved. I feel like I learned a lot from them and just hearing about them talk about their work. Very good. So in the process of working on your book, I'm, I'm sure you learned some things that were very new and different for you. For you. And what, what was the biggest surprise that you had in, in working and doing the research for your book? Uh, what... Um, I underestimated how much I like reading government documents. <laughs> <laughs> that was not the answer I expected. A lot of really fascinating things that I unearthed, and as much of it's digital now, and you can, there are a lot of digital archives, you know, national archives, all that kind of thing, um, that I, you know, went down a lot of wormholes just reading about what people did and why they did certain things. Um, and I tried to include some of those sort of fun facts um, from budget proposals and things like that. But I would say in a more serious note, one of the things that I, I really had a better appreciation for was how much effort many people over the years took to try to do their best to improve society through data collection. And the idea that in order to have a functioning society to have a functioning government and democracy, you need these numbers to be able to um, represent your society and then make decisions about, about it. Very good. Uh, Shetra, you would have made a good investigative journalist too, by the <laughs> way, <laughs> given your interest in data and documents. Uh, in your postscript, you talk about the census, uh, the 2010 census and the coming census. Do you have some concerns about the 2020 census in terms of how it's going to be executed um, and some things that we should be anticipating that maybe we haven't faced before in the challenge of, of uh, gathering all this data? I mean, I guess the looming one is the fact that there is the citizenship question issue. Mm -hmm. um, and even though it's not on the uh, census form, it's still cause enough controversy that, you know, people who wouldn't 
would normally feel a little bit uncertain about filling out such a form maybe feel even more uncertain. Mm -hmm. And those are exactly the kinds of people you might want to include in account, right? Um, so that's probably the main one. I have no qualms about or issues about, you know, the Census Bureau itself in terms of trying to do its best to do its data collection. Um, but given the fact that there were some reductions in how much testing they could do for certain things given budgetary constraints, um, there is some unknowns, I suppose. You know, the, it's, it's, it's clear that the census has to be pretty serious about the research that it does bef before it, it launches. And, you know, I, and I think the coverage of it is pretty critical. One of our, our previous guests, you know, Mark Hansen was and, and, a col and colleagues of his have, have been talking about this news counts effort mm -hmm. to try to make sure these census issues get, get uh, you know, good airing and good coverage. So, you know, I'm, I think these are really interesting issues. And in official statistics, we've talked about this with, we had Andreas Georgiou as a guest on Stats right. and Stories previously. And, and, you know, if you don't think that people care about it, you know, the, his, his story about, <laughs> about how a debt estimate associated with, with a country led to some, some serious pushback from, from the government and the importance of these agencies and presenting information that the world needs. It's not just something for internally, but something externally. You know, have have you been have you followed any of that story and have, have you know have you thought about kind of the importance of of the independence of actions of these agencies I think the fact that they um, operate independently is key because there is no point in making an estimate if there's no trust in that estimate um, and maintaining a sense of independence is is critical for that because if people think that you can just fudge the numbers in a way that you want then there's really no point to producing them in the first place. And I do think the Census Bureau does, and all the federal statistical agencies, they're filled with employees who are really committed to trying to show, you know, try to be as objective or as possible in producing their statistics to say, this is our, you know, representation of what's happening in the country. Um, and any sort of actions that sort of diminish that are, are hard to come back from, right? Once you break the trust, it's much harder to rebuild it. That takes a really long time. So, so you've worked in official statistics and you've worked now in an academic setting. If you're advising students that are interested in working in the world of official statistics, what, what's some of the preparation you would recommend for them? Take a survey sampling class. Um, <laughs> that was key. I think um, it's not necessarily one of the hot topics, you know, it's not a machine learning topic or any of that. Um, but that is sort of the number one thing um, to prepare, I would say, in terms of getting enough knowledge or having a sense of exactly how difficult it is to implement some of these kinds of mm -hmm. operations. How about political science or sort of the breadth, the breadth as well as the technical stuff? I think it depends on what you're planning to do in official statistics, mm, I guess. Mm. Um, if your work is mostly technical, obviously it would help to get that context, but maybe on the day-to-day -day job that wouldn't really be relevant. Um, if you're in more of a research division, that probably would be helpful because then you can sort of um, have a more big picture about what's happening. Um, I will say though, uh, to your point, that if you do have a sense of 
agency specific history, like Census Bureau history mm -hmm. or Bureau of Labor Statistic history, um, that would give you some information about how people approached and solved problems in the past, because mm -hmm. some of these things have always come up, right? Um, in the beginning, like I say in my book, you know, people went on horseback and, you know, collected this information <laughs> by going from house to house. Um, then in the 1960s, they started using, you know, mail forms. That was an you know, technolo technological innovation of some sorts, even using, a, a, you know, an adding machine as opposed to hand counting things. That's a technological innovation. And yes, looking back at the time, obviously that would be happening. But at the time, you know, this was new technology. Would it work well? Would it be accurate? Those are all questions. How would you implement doing a new technology and checking to see that it worked okay? You know, all of those types of questions, they keep reappearing. Um, so, an agency-specific history might be helpful in trying to see how people solve problems in the past. Well, Chaitra, that's all the time we have for this episode. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism and Film and the American Statistical Association. You can follow us on Twitter, Apple Podcasts or other places where you can find podcasts. If you'd like to share your thoughts on the program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu or check us out at our website, statsandstories.net. And be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.